Ephesians 6.16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You may take your seat. So we have gone through a number of the pieces of armor thus far, spiritual armor. We have fastened on the belt of truth. We've put on the breastplate of righteousness. We've uh, fitted our shoes with the gospel of peace. And notice that those first three pieces of armor, we fasten them to our bodies. Uh, they prepare us for battle. Without them, our bodies do not stand a chance of surviving. But as I've stated before, while there are certainly offensive qualities in some respect to those pieces of armor, indirectly, they're generally defensive. These next pieces of armor, they're not fastened to our bodies. We actually have to take them up. We have to be very intentional about taking them up. And so they're to be actively utilized and engaged for this fight. You will always need them in the midst of battle. You don't hold your sword or put on your helmet or raise up your shield unless you are literally going into war. And so get ready because our next piece of armor is a sign that the enemy is upon you. And so if you didn't know it by now, it's time for war. And to engage our mortal enemy, his name is Satan, we're going to look at this shield of faith that Paul tells us that we must raise in order to deflect and to defend ourselves against the flaming arrows of the enemy. So we're going to first look at the shield of faith, and then we'll look at the flaming arrows that we're supposed to protect ourselves against with the shield of faith. As Grace read in verse 16, Paul writes, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In ancient times, there were two types of shields. And if you've ever watched certain types of movies, such as Lord of the Rings or Braveheart, you get an idea of what these shields might look like. One type of shield is a circular shield, and it tends to be a lot more mobile and lighter. And you, when you go to battle and you're in hand-to-hand combat, you use that shield. It's a, a small circular shield that's meant to ward off blows in that hand-to-hand fight. The second shield covers the whole body. It's not something you could really carry into a hand-to-hand mortal combat, but rather it's a shield that is meant to protect you fully. In fact, the word shield that Paul uses is referred to as, it's translated as door. And that word door is is a very specific type of shield. So it gives you an idea of what that shield looks like. It's meant to be as you're preparing for war and you're on the siege lines and there's an army facing you and you are facing first a barrage of arrows, flaming arrows oftentimes. This shield, this door shield was made of wood, was reinforced with calf skin that was doused with water. And then either on top of or underneath that calf skin was sort of these plates of metal. And so all three were meant to ward off not some 
of action between a, a, a fellow foot soldier who's coming against you with a sword, because you don't need all those layers against that person. You needed it especially against these flaming arrows that would come. I like the way Charles Spurgeon describes this shield. He says, it's the shield for your shield, meaning that, remember, you have this breastplate of righteousness, you have uh, the belt of truth, you have the shoes, and in order to protect that shield, you had to wear this big shield. So it was a shield for your shield to prevent your first shield, your inner lining to take hits. So this shield, keep that in mind because it really gives you the the context by which Paul describes what he says, these circumstances. And it's meant to guard us from these deadly shots from the enemy. Notice how Paul describes this shield. It is a shield of faith. And so the big question for us that lies before us is, how does faith act as a shield against the enemy's flaming arrows? The first way is that it reminds us of God's promises of protection through Jesus Christ. Faith in Ephesians is never independent of God. It's not about some internal working within you that sort of conjures up this belief that God is real, that you have to convince yourself, okay, I believe God is real. I believe God is going to protect me. No, faith is always in coordination, ultimately rooted on Christ and what God has done and provided to you. And faith then is the response in light of what God has done for you. And faith always draws from the well, as we saw in verse 10, of the fact that we are mighty in God. God is the one who strengthens us. And so faith is a response to that strength. Faith is the means by which we respond to God's word in light of flaming arrows. So know this. It's not as though this is about preparation. Now you're on the battle lines. The arrows are all around you. They're coming in all directions. And so we're not talking about this neutral time, but really bad times, difficult times, trying times. And during those times, it's very easy to let this temptation to cause us possibly sometimes to even sink in despair. All of us have faced this temptation to feel discouragement and dismay and despair. And regardless of your inclinations, we have an enemy who is constantly accusing, attacking, and trying to deceive us to sink, to forget about God, to turn away, to forget about his word. We know this to be true because we saw it in the very beginning in the garden. I mean, really, when there was no sin in the world and Satan comes in and says, Does, did God actually say to Eve? He tries to undermine God's promises, his faithfulness, his word. And that is at the core of his attack. It's always to try to undermine his promises and God's word. Faith, then, is the responsive action to remember God's promises through his word. That's what faith ultimately is. It is always going back to remember God's faithfulness. Faith is rooted in God's faithfulness. And so we see this. I could have listed many, many texts of the Bible that describe this. Psalm 42 is one such text. In 
Psalm 42, the psalmist is being taunted by people all around him. And they're mocking him because they tr- he trusts God. Probably because he was facing very difficult circumstances, maybe just like Job, where he's doing so terribly and suffering so much, where perhaps even like Job, his wife is saying, curse God and die. That's how badly he off he was. And so people are mocking him. But listen to what he says in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. There's a shield of faith that he raises because he recognizes that there is an attack, a flaming arrow of despair coming right towards him. And his tendency, maybe even natural tendency, is to sink. And you have all these people around you just accusing and mocking, but he refuses to, to go low. He, he raises up his shield of faith despite persecution, and he refuses to yield. I think of someone like John Erickson Tata, after spending over 50 years in a wheelchair, saying that she wouldn't change a thing. I mean, how many people could say that? The only way you can say that is if you raise up your shield of faith. Listen to what she says. She prays, thank you, God, for this life you have given me. Thank you for the many opportunities to serve you, even in my pain. Thank you, God, for this wheelchair, for it's been granted to me to not only believe in your son, but to suffer for his sake. And here's the really, the two words of faith, oh joy. Faith is not about trying to conjure up within yourself some feeling. Faith is to remember God's promises, that he is faithful. Let me speak of another woman who also experienced the same thing. Blinded Fanny Crosby, a century earlier, writes this in a poem. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. When I read those words, I see a a huge door being raised up, a shield of faith that says, though trials may come and go, I will not yield to dismay and discouragement, and sorrow. It's not that we don't feel those temptations. It's not that we don't feel grieving and difficult times, grievous times, but we refuse to yield to it. We refuse to let us control our view of God and his promises. Let's look then at a scriptural view of this. We look at Hebrews 11, often thought of as the chapter on faith. And the thing about this chapter is that these men and women who are listed in Hebrews 11 so often are people who were promised by God certain mercies, certain pictures of um, God's leading and shepherding. And it's very easy to take that type of promise and think, okay, I'm going to be prosperous in this world because that's how often 
wrongly we think of faith. Faith means personal prosperity, never experiencing hardship and trial, as though we would even need faith to begin with if that were true. But you look at the different people in Hebrews 11, and there's a common thread. The thread is that actually in this world, those people listed did not experience the full fruition of what they were promised. Even in their own lives, as they trusted God and as God gave promises to them, they didn't experience it in this world. It's sort of the, the, the whole thrust of Hebrews chapter 11 is that God promises that he's going to be with them. He doesn't, he promises many things, but his ultimate promise is I'm going to be with you. And each one of them, as they start living their life, they don't experience at least physically, materially, all of those things. When God promises to Abraham, leave your comfortable home, go into this land that I will give to your descendants, who will be like stars in the sky. I mean, think about that for a moment. And then you think about Abraham's life and you examine, when did he have a child? He's probably, what, a hundred years old. How many, how many children did he have? Two? You know, what, where was he living? He was promised this promised land. Hebrews tells us that he lived in tents his whole life. Probably a very difficult life. Yes, he was wealthy to some extent, but it was, and most of you know this, no matter how much money you have and you go to the nicest hotels or whatever it might be and travel to different places, eventually, you get tired of it. You want to go back home. There's something, and we've talked about this many times, we're not meant to be traveling. We are travelers in this world, foreigners, aliens, strangers, as Peter describes, but we're supposed to be home. And so no matter how nice the place you're traveling to, it's never the same as home. And so Abraham leaves his home, is promised a new home, but his whole life is a life of traveling. So the question is this, is God faithful? Does he keep his promises? Listen to how the Hebrews writer describes it in Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar for having and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So these people died in faith. These all died in faith, not having received what was promised. That seems like a complete opposite of how you would think of faith. I thought faith meant if you believe, you will receive the promises of God. But what we do know is this, is that the answer is yes, you will receive what God promises. Definitely, because God never breaks his promises. But no, we don't receive them in the way that we think we should receive them. It's not about getting the earthly promise fulfilled because God promises this is not your home anyway. 
He's bringing you to your ultimate home where you actually will be fulfilled forever and ever, where you really will be home. And so that promise, perhaps let's say you're feeling ill and maybe you go to the doctor and there's a really terrible diagnosis you've received. And so we ask for all of our friends and church and family to pray for you for healing. I'm not saying we shouldn't ask for that prayer. We should. But know this is that even if you are healed, what is the end result of that healing? You're going to die one day. Even if you're healed of that cancer, that healing is temporary. No matter how much you are healed physically, you're not healed physically forever in this world. So the promise of even of a physical healing is still limited and temporal. We know that eventually people will die. We know that if you are freed from and you pray, oh Lord, deliver me from this unjust person at work, your neighbor. Well, what happens when God delivers you? You encounter another unjust person. And that, and there's another unjust person. There's an unjust society. There's an unjust government. There's an unjust world. Do you see how the promises, they don't last? You pray, you're in financial need. You pray for financial need. God provides. But we're never supposed to trust in that provision. We're supposed to trust in the God of that provision. Because here's the problem with trusting in a provision. We all know how long money lasts for. If you pray, oh Lord, we're in financial trouble. Please provide for me. And he provides. Well, guess what? You might run into the next financial trouble. And if your hope was in the financial trouble and not in the God who provides financial trouble or financial need, then you've placed your hope in something that will never last. There's a, when we have faith in the God who provides, not in the provision, but the God who provides, that is the faith that protects us from the flaming arrows. But if you place your hope in the provision itself, oh, how disappointed you will be. So when you look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and David, and you look at Hebrews 11, know that their hope was in the God who was providing the promises, not the promise. That's what protects us and guards us and keeps us. Your hope is in him. And that's why the Hebrews writer says, the God who is not ashamed of you to be called your God because you've placed your hope in him. You've trusted him. That's why someone like Johnny Erickson Tata could be in a wheelchair and have faith and hope in God because it's not in healing of her body. Or Fanny Crosby praying, she's not saying, oh Lord, I'm blind. Please open my eyes. I'm sure she prayed that prayer. But in the end, I'm not going to be discouraged and live my life cursing God and thinking that everything's terrible with my life. I'm going to, I refuse. That was her point. I, I won't because I'm blind. I'm not going to sigh and be in dismay. I'm not going to weep all day. I'm going to trust in the God who is over even my blindness and uses it for his purposes and his glory and who is over COVID and who can use it for his purposes and his glory. That's why when we are quaking in fear of our lives, and I always think about this, think it's something we should examine. Forget about vaccines, cure. 
If your hope is in a vaccine or a cure from a disease, the provision of that so that everything will go back to normal, then you're placing your hope in a promise, but not in the God of promise. We should, in all circumstances, guard our hearts from fear, not because of disease or we're living in a certain type of area, so it's more dangerous in certain uh, parts of the neighborhood or at night. As long as we're considering that above God himself and trusting him rather than the circumstances around us, we're trying to protect something that will not last. Again, it's not to say we shouldn't take precautions or think wisely, but ultimately, ultimately, I have to ask the question, whom do I ultimately trust? So you see, God's promises His words are true. They never fail us. We know that because eternally we know that for a certainty. This is the shield of faith we raise. The shield of faith that trusts in the God who is behind the promises. Second is that we know that this shield protects us in all circumstances. All circumstances. As we see in these flaming arrows, they come in all sides, in all directions. And they are meant to destroy you. They're meant to kill you. They're meant to harm you. So Paul says, take up the shield of faith in all circumstances. And this really is a segue, a good segue into this next section, because we have to think about what are these circumstances? Meaning, what are the flaming arrows, these flaming darts? I think you can imagine these arrows. Again, consider these medieval battle scenes. And these arrows had reed shafts with holes. And what these people would do is they would put flammable materials inside the shafts. And so when it was lit on fire, think of it like wax and uh, just a, a, a a flammable material meant to sustain itself even after the shot is taken. So by the time it hits something, even if you were to take a bunch of water and start trying to douse it, it comes back. It's not meant to go out so easily. It's meant to be a burning missile, to destroy as much as possible. So that's why those door-sized shields of animal skins and metals doused with water is meant to not just ward off spears, but these flaming arrows, when you were behind this door, you were safe. One move outside of the door, and you're in big trouble. Your life is at stake. It would be a horrific, fiery death for you if you were to be hit by one of these arrows. So too, Satan's arrows are intended for that purpose. It has that type of power. I want to look at a few ways in which how this type of arrow is described throughout scripture. First is they are diverse. Paul describes them as all the flaming darts of every kind, and they are meant to get you so that if you were to lower your shield of faith in the God of faithfulness, then you will be wiped away, destroyed. And he will use all sorts of different types of arrows to try to kill you, to devour you. He will use your hard work, 
If you're a hard worker, he will use that. He will use the opposite, your laziness. He will use your moral goodness, but he will also use your depraved evil heart. He will use your penchant to feel melancholy, but he will also use your penchant to feel carefree. He will use your extroversion against you. He will use your introversion against you. He will use your boldness when you preach the gospel to thousands against you to be swelled up with pride. He will use your cowering fear towards your coworkers so that if they should even ever know that you were a Christian, you would be, you would be terrified. He will use your desire to protect your marriage and your family so that you never live sacrificially for the sake of the gospel. He will use your desire to neglect your family at the altar of ministry. He will use your inability to control your appetites. He will use your zeal to for good eating and good health and good exercise against you so that that will dominate your life. I mean, the list is endless. There's I could have just come up with a hundred ways in which he uses both sides to make you focused on the provision, not the provider, on the gift, not the giver. That's just the, the number one strategy that he has. And so Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 10, 10 through 11, listen to what he says. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that you would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Think about that for a moment, that that forgiveness assumes that there's something in your heart that has been tweaked by somebody. Someone has said something, done something, um, and it irks you. And it could be a personality quirk. It could be a real genuine hurt. But when a person is raising their shield of faith, they are so aware that Satan has multiple diverse arrows just pointed right at you to try to get you to hate that person, be broken in relationship with that person, not wanting to show mercy and kindness and grace and care and compassion. And so one of many schemes And Paul says, we are not unaware of his schemes. We are aware of them. Know the diversity of the arrows. Secondly is, these arrows are destructive. They are powerful. He, Christian, he wants to destroy you. Never forget Peter's warning in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan doesn't want your body. He wants your soul. And he wants to do anything he can to get it. If it means he needs to kill you to get your soul, he will do it. But it could be if he can get, if he can get you to be prosperous and wealthy and comfortable, to get your soul, he will make you prosperous, wealthy, and comfortable. See, he doesn't care about your body only for the purpose of getting your soul. 
And so he'll do either way, make you poor or rich, make you comfortable or uncomfortable, make you suffering or healthy, make you a person fixated on a, on a certain particular diet or make you absolutely willing to go to any buffet and eat to your heart's delight. I mean, he doesn't care about your body. He only cares about your body and your mind, how it impacts your soul so that you don't worship Christ and you don't influence anyone else to worship Christ. Now that he's really excited about. He wants to destroy you and your soul. That's another one of his arrows, what he does. Next is that his arrows are distractive. I really think this is Satan's perhaps most used flaming arrow. It's his special arrow in the quiver because it's the one that he just has sort of on regular, you know, he pulls it out. I'm going to use this on everybody because it always works. Listen to Jesus' description of Satan in Matthew 13, 18 to 19. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. I think, look at, keep an eye on this text. And if you look at the verbs, hear, understand, snatches, sown, meaning it's possible to hear God's word but fail to understand it. And the reason why we don't understand it is because it's not sown deeply enough. And when it's not sown deeply enough, Satan snatches it. So meaning that it's possible that you are listening to God's word. Maybe you're listening to this message right now, but in the middle of it, you have all these thoughts. And if you're watching from home and you're sitting on that couch and right next to you is your, your, your food is cooking and you're thinking about, okay, what am I going to do right after? And you're, you're, you're really hoping this message ends as soon as possible because you really want to get up and get going. Or maybe you're on wearing your pajamas right now and you know, you're just thinking, Oh, I could go back to sleep. And the arrows are coming of distraction. The, the, the word is not being sown deeply. And Satan comes, snatches it out and says, forget it. So as soon as this is over, you're going to forget everything because you have so many other things to think about. I know I'm like that. I know I'm tempted to think that way all the time. And so, again, I mentioned this before when we talked about Satan is that why is it that when we try to do anything to do with the Lord, distractions come nonstop. If you commit to reading the Bible, suddenly you have an itch on your foot. Suddenly, when you start reading the Bible, it's, oh, I, uh, I'm so thirsty. I got to get some water. And you start getting up, get water. And then as you go to the sink to get water, then you notice, wait a second, the dishes aren't fully done, right? And you start doing the dishes. And then you think, then you look at over and on your refrigerator, there's a list of your grocery list. Oh, I got to go buy that. I gotta. So you start getting ready to put on, you know, change and you go out to grocery shopping. God's word is gone. Why does that happen most when you're trying to read the Bible? If you have, if you've committed, I'd shared with my Old Testament theology class in the very beginning. I said, statistically, I read the statistic somewhere. I don't, can't remember where, but in Bible studies, out of a hundred percent of the people who join 
probably about 30% of you are not going to finish, maybe even more. And that's almost always lasted. Some of you have already quit after two weeks. You said, I'm going to do Mark. And so if there's 20 women, now there's 15. And then, oh, OT theology, I really want to know God's word. So some of you said, I'm going to study it. And then when there's 45 signed up, now there's 30 people on. These are actually, and I, I think there's a reason why. And I don't think it's because you're busy. I think it's because the enemy wants to do everything he can to stop you from growing, to love Christ. And so it's not about commitments. It's about distraction. And that happens all the time. Again, if we believe the Bible here and we say, this is a spiritual war. And this enemy, he is really smart. He is the smartest, strongest, most strategic, cleverest being next to God himself. There is no person alive who can match wits with him. Only Jesus can. We can, though. On our own strength, we can't. But through Christ in the shield of faith, through by putting on the spiritual armor, we can match wits with him through Christ. But on our own, forget it. You're helpless. Perhaps the most endangered person alive is either the person who is considering Christ for the first time or has just turned to Christ. They're the most endangered person of all. This is why if you know someone you're sharing the gospel with, surround that person with prayer. Pray for them. Get other people to pray for them because Satan is going to fight hard so that your words mean nothing, so that they will be distracted. If you know these people, if you're ever sharing the gospel or wanting someone in your family, you know, a lot of times we, we are thinking about a family member who we so want to turn to Christ. Well, if that's really true, don't just pray for them. Get other people to pray for them because there's a, there's a, a, a God of this world that has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And the only way that that person will ever open their heart to Christ is God sovereignly acting by his spirit. And God loves the prayers of his people. We'll talk a lot about prayer coming soon. But in this spiritual war, when you're dealing with people who are distracted, we need to surround that person with prayer. So ask people, hey, can you pray for my mom? I really want her to know Christ. But I know that it's not, God can use a single prayer, but I'd love for you to be part of my prayer team. I know when a lot of missionaries, when they go overseas, they form a prayer team of people. They say, can you be a prayer partner for my mission? How many of us actually ever consider about forming a prayer team, prayer partners for your loved ones to say, this is a war and I want other people to be in my regiment so that we can fight this battle against this enemy who wants nothing more than to have my loved one in hell. And so therefore, I'm going to surround this person with prayer. Guarantee you, you will see something. God is a God of faithfulness. Lastly, uh, these arrows are dark. They are dark. John writes in Revelation, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, 
Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down. This is the part that is dark. Who accuses them day and night before our God. I call that dark because it's real evil, isn't it? And think about someone. There is someone out there who is the accuser of our brothers. Meaning, we're not talking about non-Christians. He's accusing Christians. And he's accusing Christians before God about you. Imagine someone all the time saying negative things about you to God. Do you know that's happening right now, according to this passage? That someone wants God to forget you. This is the evil and the darkness that we are up against. And this darkness is going to be covering us if we are not raising up our shield of faith. It's an emotional darkness. It's a spiritual darkness. Sometimes it's a a physical darkness. And so do not be surprised when there's suddenly, if you've ever felt it, just this wave of discouragement, despair, where you feel as though you just can't get up or everything seems to be closing in. Sometimes, and I know some of you felt this even at night where you can't say anything, you can't do anything. And especially in physical darkness, there's that sense of foreboding. Oftentimes, I know um, Sue and I, we've talked about the fact that when it comes to we're about to go to sleep, we decided we're never going to talk about anything that is too serious. Meaning, we could talk about theology, but if there's ever anything that there's maybe a little tension between the two of us, we just don't do it. Because that physical darkness there's something spiritual to it as well. And we see this all throughout scripture. So the enemy is accusing you day and night. What is our hope against that? The shield of faith. You lift up that shield, you put it in front of you and say, my God is a God of faithfulness. He will never let me go. He was 13. He is always by my side. In fact, listen to what the psalmist describes God as. Psalm 28, 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore, not darkness, my heart exalts. And with my song, I shall thank him. That's why we sing. We exalt because, not because I lift up my shield. He is my shield. And when I lift up my shield, what I'm doing is reminding myself, he is my shield. And what type of shield was he? We sang about it earlier. Jesus became our shield. He shielded us. See, when we raise up the shield, we, raise, we deflect the flaming arrows. But actually what we're doing is raising up the shield of Christ himself. Because Jesus was the ultimate shield against the flaming arrows of the enemy. We saw that throughout his life in the desert the temptations, the life lived, all of the different attacks. But the greatest attack of all was against Christ at the cross. Where Paul describes in Galatians 3.13, listen to this arrow that was aimed right at him for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
He shielded us. He shielded us from our own sins. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on tree. Jesus Christ is our great shield. He became the curse so that we would not bear that curse. He shielded us from our own rebellion against God and our own sin. And so therefore, in light of that, where do the accusations stand that are day and night? Christ is our shield. He deflects all those accusations. He puts them to naught. They're gone forever. Where is Satan with Christ as our shield? He flees. Just like in the desert, he went away. Resist the devil, James says, and he will flee from you. Where is death? Death is doomed forever. Death is fleed. Where is fear with our great shield of Christ? Fear is gone, is vanquished. Where are these flaming arrows that come? They are harmlessly extinguished. This is our God. This is our Savior. This is our great shield. Let's pray together. Jesus, you did so much for us. You provided a way, a means by which we have life forever in you. I really ask, oh God, for those who are watching at home, that you would drive away fear. May we not place our hope in a future vaccine or for the virus to dissipate, for life to go back as normal. Normality is but a fleeting moment. What we really want and need most is to be satisfied in you. To do so is to be satisfied forever. I pray, O oh Lord, for those who are burdened and heavy laden, who are facing right now many, many dark flaming arrows that are destructive and diverse. I pray, O oh God, that you protect them by the very shield of Christ. And because of that, we can exult in you. We can sing for joy. We can respond with this great love that we have because you have loved us first. Oh, Lord, be glorified, Lord. Help us to delight in you. Help us to respond to your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.